Thanks for downloading the Sciatica podcast. I'm Tom Jessen. Today I'm talking to Mark Laslett. The conversation takes place a couple of days after I'd finished Mark's online course on radicular pain, uh, which is actually just one module of a much bigger course on spinal conditions in general. Uh, It was really good and I recommend it. And he didn't ask me to say that. In today's podcast, I ask Mark a series of questions that came up as I was taking his course, and some questions from listeners and readers, and from myself, that I just think are best answered by the one and only Mark Laslett. So, I hope you enjoy the podcast. Mark Laslett. Mark, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I've just taken your course on radicular pain. And uh, uh, I saw that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, I think I recommended it in my newsletter. And I'll, I'll say a few more words in the introduction to this podcast. But I think this would be a good opportunity for me to ask a few questions that came up during the course and that kind of come up as I'm reading that I think of as kind of questions for Mark Laslett and I think you might be able to shed some light on. Is that okay for today? I'm sure that Mark Laslett should be able to comment on what Mark <laughs> Let's start with a question that I think might be a bit of an easy one, but we'll see. What collection of findings uh, are sufficient in your mind to rule out somatic referred pain? Somatic referred pain has a very specific character. Mm. Uh, it's uh, deep, it's diffuse, it doesn't have clear margins. And, um, and it generally is more intense closer towards the source and becomes less intense the more distal away from the source it is. That, that, that characteristic is what you need to know about. The sacroelectron intense are irrelevant in this regard. The, mm. um, uh, the, obviously, you can have somatic referred pain and radicular pain coexisting, and they frequently do. And so um, you have to distinguish between the somatic components of the patient's complaint and the radicular pain components, which may be dominant or actually a lesser part of the, of the whole picture. So um, they, they, it's not either or. And um, so they commonly coexist. Do you have a theory of what's going on when someone has radicular pain, but their MRI does not show any herniation? Um, I will relate to you one story which, um, which was very in the early days of MRI. MRIs are a lot better now than they were back then. Uh, you know, you know 1.5 and 3 Tesla um, uh, is normal. Uh, back then, when I was talking about it, it's, it's 0.5. But yeah. <laughs> it was in the early 90s. And I had this guy that had been, he's a young man, 23 years of age, and he'd been bent double, almost, you know, like flexed forward like that for two years. Mm. And I saw him uh, after he'd been like that for two years. And uh, and the surgeon that he had seen had done an MRI and it came back as normal. And, um, and he didn't have any leg symptoms at all. And I was unable to, to straighten him up and every attempt to do so was obstructed and really, really painful. And I rang up his surgeon, who I happen to know, and I said, look, I don't care what the MRI says. Operate on this prick, will you, and get rid of his bloody disc. And he said, but the MRI is normal. I said, you can't trust the MRI. You have to trust your judgment. 
And he goes in there and I rang him up. The guy comes in like two weeks after the operation, straight and Mm -hmm. pain-free after having a massive herniated disc um, removed. And I rang up the surgeon afterwards and I said, um, uh, his name is Howie, Howie, look, um, what did you find? He says, I, he says, it's one of the biggest herniations I've ever seen. And I asked him, so why didn't the MRI show that? And he says, I have no idea. <laughs> now, I, okay, the MRIs are better, but they're not perfect. Mm. And you just can't, just because it's negative, doesn't mean to say you can rule out anything. Um, we know this, and, um, and just uh, it may be... 95% sensitive, that means that 5% are going to be missed. So you just have to be very careful about um, what I would call, I mean, I, you know, people often accuse me of being sort of like dogmatic, boom, boom, boom. And I, and I often am, I know that. But I warn against dogmatism because we talk about error rate mm-hmm. and error is real. I don't always get it right. I had a patient referred to me by the ED just only a few a month or so ago. And I was convinced she had an extrusion. She doesn't have an extrusion. And she's now, and I sent her off to have, um, to see a surgeon, to get the MRI done and have an injection done. The wrong injection was done. Confirmed the injection into the disc was done with an anaesthetic and switched her pain off for four, for four hours and all came back again. And she had some loss and she had some red flag like uh, quarter type symptoms. Uh, I was convinced that she had um, a large extrusion. She didn't. Hmm. I followed her up two days ago. Yeah. Two yeah. days ago. No, yesterday. Yesterday I followed up. And she'd been messing around and gone back to the ED on, spent eight days in hospital. And I looked at her yesterday and I gave her, put her on my Repix bed, which is an extension bed, and it completely abolished her pain inside 10 minutes. And she'd been in the hospital eight days ago, yeah, uh, about a week or 10 days ago, yeah. for eight days. And she'd been messed around with because I thought she had an extrusion and clinically it looked like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I was wrong. I mean, you just can't get it right every time. Mm. This is, this is life. This is clinical life. And so, um, and, and she turned out to have a really, really rapidly reversible um, um, extension response. But, she, but two months ago when I first saw her, I couldn't get even close to that. And she had, she had a, she did have a bulging disc, but not an extrusion like mm. I thought. Mm-hmm. So, look, MRIs are really helpful, but they're not God and they're not gold. <laughs> no such thing as a gold standard in clinical practice. I never use that term, really. I use mm. reference standard or criterion standard. It's a criterion or a reference. That's it. Sounds good to me. That's my judgment far more than the MRI. Yeah. In your course, you referred to the IASP list of causes of radicular pain, uh, and it mentions various causes of radiculitis, uh, so secondary to, for example, an annular fissure or exudates from a Z joint, for example. Do you think radiculitis has a different clinical presentation than a prolapsed intervertebral disc? I think you're dichotomizing too much. Yes. Radiculitis, by the very construct construct of that word, means inflammation of the radical or, or of the nerve root. Now, you can have inflammation. I believe you do get inflammation of the nerve root. 
um, I believe you have irritation of the nerve root or at least compression of the nerve root without much inflammation at all. If you talk to any surgeon who looks at these things on a daily basis, they will say that very often when a nerve root is stretched around an extruded disc, it's not inflamed. It's just, it looks blue rather than normal white. It actually looks anoxic. Mm. So, um, so there's, there's a chemical consequence of, of simple um, being stretched around an extrusion, perhaps. And then you have, if you have um, a disc herniation where the nucleus pulposus actually comes into contact with the nerve root and or, and or the dura, it is chemically irritating. You have to remember that um, the disc nucleus, which is 90% of all disc extrusions have nuclear content. And it's, so that, it's not just the annulus bulging out under pressure from a nucleus, but it's actually extruded material, then there will be a chemical consequence. Whether you want to call that an inflammatory process or something else, uh, that's not my area of expertise. But to me, it's uh, inflammation, or if you like, radiculitis has got enough. Mm-hmm. And there is a chemical consequence. Some of those will cause long-standing problems, and Anina Schmidt, will probably give you a chapter and verse on that. Uh, I did her course, I think, 18 months ago in Paris, and very, very good course too. And so, um, you know, there's, there's, there is there's definitely ongoing um, neuropathic consequences from irritation, from stretching, from compression and stuff like that. But it's not a simple it's pressure or it's inflammation or it's, it's not an argument about these things. I think these things can be coexisting and on occasions you'll get pure mechanical pressure and on occasions you'll get irritation without much mechanical pressure and anywhere or in between. The person who has purely mechanical pressure, I've seen it because you can give them shift correction and extension and their neurologic deficit vanishes. Mm-hmm. You sit them slouched and it all comes back again. Mm-hmm. Then you do the extension and side collection and side gliding, nice stuff, and the pain and, and the deficit the, uh, disappears and the pain disappears. Then you can make it all come back again, like a yo yo. That's mechanical. There's no inflammation there that I can judge. Then you have the people who have lots of ridiculous pain nine, 10 out of 10, leg pain, night and day, agony. And it's um, and it, and whatever you do, what makes it worse? And there's a large, I think, a large inflammatory component to that. And so, to me, I would definitely put a corticosteroid around that, like an epidural, and just see what effect that would have. Now, that doesn't always work, all right. But when it does work, it can be very dramatic. So th- these people say, oh, epidurals don't work. Well, they haven't seen enough of them. That's their problem. Um, I've seen that it's like magic. Then I've seen, and then sometimes it makes it worse. I mean, clinical life is not simple. We have to, we, we work with error. Mm-hmm. This is life. It's okay. If you don't like, if you don't like that, you shouldn't be doing it. <laughs> no, I fully accept your point that about dichotomizing. Um, Although, as you say, that there does seem to be some features that point you towards it being a more mechanical uh, than inflammatory, but perhaps beyond that, um, 
not a great deal we can say for sure about what's happening inside someone's body, well, even well, with the MRI. We can so. say a bit about it, but we don't always get it right either. I think that's mm-hmm. I think that's the thing we uh, a little bit of humility really helps. It's it's hard to be humble in my tight jeans. You know what I'm talking about? It's <laughs> the reality is. I mean, I've been doing this a very long time, and I've been. I think my error margin is getting smaller as I get older, but it's still there. You mentioned injections. There's a question from John, a, a reader and listener, who is wondering if there's a particular time frame uh, when you think injections might be most effective. Mm, I, again, I, I wouldn't regard myself as an expert in that question because Fine. I don't really think that the research, I mean, I personally, uh, I don't do them. So, um, yes. Uh, I, and, I, and I'm not in an environment where I regularly work with somebody now who does them. During my PhD studies, I was working with Dr. April. I mean, he was doing them every day. But, and I saw a lot of people uh, with and without radicula, radiculopathy, people with just back pain, um, who also responded brilliantly too. And sometimes it was just completely no effect whatsoever. So, um, you know, there's, there, there, is, there is good and bad here. Um, I think probably with regards to radicular pain, radiculopathy um, and uh, management, I think Hans van Helvert's work um, in the Netherlands is probably one of the most valuable pieces of research that have been done in this, in this area. What he did, with his, and he worked working with uh, people who do these injections and the surgeons, he took a bunch of people who satisfied the criteria for actual surgery. In other words, they had a neurologic deficit, they had dominant leg pain, and um, and they had an MRI finding that showed um, sufficient pr- uh, bulging and pressure on a nerve root to warrant uh, surgery. And he took those patients and he tried to centralise their pains and he succeeded with a proportion of those. And uh, those that did not respond or centralise, they went off to have an injection, up to two or three injections, I think it was. And uh, about 11% of the people he failed with to centralise did actually get a good response from the injection. He then saw them after the injection and he found he could actually centralise, the ones that he couldn't centralise before the injection, some of them he could centralise. And in the end, I think it was less than 15% of patients actually chose to have surgery, even though they're all surgical candidates. So to me, um, proper assessment followed by the judicious use of injections, followed by workup clinical assessment again, those are the people that if you follow that sort of plan, I think you get reduced amount of surgical interventions, which is always a good thing. But the people who want it and need it actually can get it. So there's a group of people who, I mean, if I had raging leg pain and I couldn't restore my extension and centralise my pain, I would say to my good neurosurgeon down the road, hey, well, when can you fit me in for, the, for an emergency surgery, please? I have no problem with that. There are certain people for whom that is the right thing. Mm-hmm. even if they don't have quadriquinus syndrome. You know, it, they, it's the right thing. Why wait months just to find out, just, just to get better, when you can get better literally overnight if it's the right thing to do, mm-hmm. all right? And even if you wait six months, you might still need the surgery anyway. So yeah. uh, as a patient, I would choose that option. Mm-hmm. I don't, I've never had to even have that consideration. I've, I, I've only ever had 
a little bit of somatic referred pain in one leg. I've had plenty of back pain. I know what it's like to deal with that. It's a terrific study, the, the one you mentioned. And Good stuff. I think I'm right in saying it's it's great because it it um it really gives you like a, a some guidance for practice which a plan. which is yeah which is incredible. oh absolutely yeah. and it does it doesn't treat physiotherapy injections and surgery as in their own little silos yeah <laughs> looks at the picture the actual a certain subset of back pain patients if you like mostly leg pain actually but uh, and what do you, what do you do with these people. And I think it's a, it's a good study. In your course, you mentioned that you just started using Pain Detect. I think I'll it was Pain Detect. That was yeah, my question. How are you yes, getting I'll on with stop. that? <laughs> out the window. I, what was your experience? I, I, I was actually after doing Anina's course, actually, that I started using it. And mm -hmm. because um, um, she encouraged me to, or asked to, to look at just differentiating between neuropathic pain versus nociceptive pain, and pain detect was a nice way to do that. I did that for a year. I started with every patient, and I find it really didn't change what I did, mm. uh, contrary to what she suspected. What um, I had a, a, some backwards and forth with Derek Griffin on Twitter, and he recommended using the DAS 21. Mm -hmm. Uh, to give you um, uh, simple measures of um, um, of stress, anxiety, and depression, um, which I find is useful. And so I've, I've stopped using the pain detect, and I started using uh, that, because you can't give patients more than 100 questionnaires, you know. I mean, it's, it's turned down questionnaires. So the idea, you have to select what you give your patients, and, I, and I've... I've changed over over the years. There are a few that I've stuck with. I use the role of Morris rather than the Oswestry because it's so easy, and, and and it's yes no questions and not. And people who have whose English whose second language might be English, um, it's much easier for them to use yes no questions rather than the Oswestry, which is a very good questionnaire. It's just that it's to find subtle distinctions between five options, you know for each particular domain. Um, I, I find that in New Zealand anyway, where we have, um, uh, you know, I mean, I think 25% of all New Zealanders weren't born here. So uh, it, it's, it's um, yes, no questions are better. Yeah, um, yeah. So I prefer that. I use the CSI all the time. I find that is extremely valuable, the central sensitization inventory. I am no, I'm no clinician when it comes to pain therapies. Mm -hmm. I'm not a pain therapist. I have a colleague just down the road mm -hmm. who I send patients to who are sensitized and she manages that. Mm -hmm. um, but I utterly accept that central sensitization is a significant important factor that we have to deal with. And I like the DAS because it gives me those nice subtle, some insight into a person's stress levels, anxiety, and depression. Mm -hmm. So um, those are the questionnaires that I use. It's, it's funny you say you're, you're no pain therapist because it hits on something that I was trying to understand from being on your course, which I think resonated with me quite, quite well. And I, maybe I'm uh, mischaracterizing and please tell me if I am, but I feel like when your approach to practice and your philosophy of practice has quite 
clear boundaries or or lines. I feel like you have quite a um, clear philosophy of what you, how you approach uh, the evidence that you allow to inform your practice, and in terms of the the boundaries of your practice. Do you see? Do you see what I'm, I'm getting at? I, th- I think where the reason I'm saying it is that sometimes I feel like a pressure to be all things to all men, be the pain therapist and the ACL rehab specialist, and. Well, you know, you get to a point in life. You know, I'm 70 years of age. I'm 70 this year, and um, and I started off 50 years ago um, as a physiotherapy student still when I was taught manipulation by a medical doctor and also diagnostics. And so I've had been passionate about particularly diagnostics ever since. And I've from 1970 through to the present time which is 70 years, uh, 50 years, I say, um, I have seen everything emerge as a fad and be reinvented in various forms. And there are very few things that have stood the test of time. I was one of the first physiotherapists to do acupuncture. And I tried traditional acupuncture, Western acupuncture, scalp acupuncture, ear acupuncture, the Japanese version, Raidaraku, and what have you. I was exposed to Kendall's work on muscles and then Vladimir Yanda, and I couldn't get enthusiastic about Shirley Simon, um, even though some of my best students, particularly Steve White, um, um, who's a teacher at this AUT, he became very, very involved in that, and, um, and he believes it's really important. I could never get enthused about muscles. Um, they just seem to be like beside the point, um, actually. Um, I've been I've been exposed to more versions of osteopathy than you can possibly imagine. I've had a lot of exposure to I've one of my best friends actually is a chiropractor in Santa Monica, Gary Jacob, and I've spent a lot of time with Gary. Every time I pass through Los Angeles, we're going out and smoke a cigar and have a meal and and uh, and what have you. And we and he's a great he's a really good clinician. He's a chiropractor. And we've talked about chiropractic philosophy, about subluxations. About, I know I've got, although I've never been taught a lot of chiropractic techniques, I've had a lot of discussion about that. And so I, I've been exposed to a lot of stuff and very few things have stood the test of time. And you can tick them off if you want to. Um, you, you might be clarity of thinking, some people have uh, over 50 years just become more confused. I've become more dogmatic, I suppose. I've, I probably have always been that way. But the reality is, is that if it doesn't work in my hands, why am I doing it? Mm-hmm. All right. So with acupuncture and stuff like that, I personally, in my hands, it doesn't, it gives unreliable results. I've seen incredible things happen, which just, I, I go, what? But can I make it happen again? No. Yeah. Can I can I predict which patients it's going to happen with? No. So why am I doing it? I mean, is this just magic? Is mm-hmm. it placebo? Is it attention? Is it because it's weird? Some weird people like it. I mean, what the hell is it? I've I've stopped doing it. I don't do it anymore. I think it doesn't is not stood the test of time. Now you can talk the evidence all you like. But when it doesn't work in my hands, why am I using it? I'm a skilled manual therapist. I taught manipulative therapies for years. Do I use it a lot now? No, I don't. Why? Mackenzie was right. Back in the middle 
I remember him saying it loud and clear. Why are we manipulating 100% of patients just to get the very few who really need it? Mm. He wasn't wrong. And I, and manipulation has a place. If I see a lateral shift, I wrap my arms around that patient and I straighten them out. What? Why would you wait? Why would you go through be David Poulter and, and sit back there? And I mean, he's as good a manual therapist as I am. He knows how to do these things. But why wait? I just get stuck in and do it, just like Mulligan would, you know. Um, what? You were practicing. You know, manual therapy has a place, but a small place. Mm. Acupuncture does not. Repeated movements, if you don't know how to do repeated movements, you shouldn't be treating back pains, in my opinion. Just my opinion. Because there are some people who get really, really a lot better very fast with flexion, and some people get really, really worse with that and vice versa. And the same with the extension and, and the variations. It's really important stuff to know, in my opinion. How, um, speaking of, you know, uh, experience and change over time. How has your approach to treating people with ridiculous pain changed over time? Anything that stands out there? It, I mean, that's 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 a story in itself, and, I, and we haven't got time to go into it. But um, as recently as the late 1970s, you were uh, when back in the 70s in the, in Auckland, where I was practicing, you could not get. It was really hard to get something to have surgery. It was really difficult. Mm -hmm. So I had to manage all through the 70s, mostly, and into the 80s too, most of the patients with radicular pain, radiculopathy, I had to manage without surgery and without injections. So I got really, really comfortable with the natural history of these things, even though I was unable to turn them around. I had to manage them through their pain with a GP and lots of drugs and that sort of stuff because I couldn't do anything. I, but I was still, what are you going to do with these patients? Say, so go away and come back in six months um, and hopefully you're a bit better. Mm -hmm. um, no, I was in a clinical practice in the suburbia. My, I knew my patients. And um, so I, I took care of my patients, uh, even though we didn't have really access to some of these things. Um, in different parts, I mean, I, during the 1980s, I started teaching internationally and I saw patients who were getting surgeries for radicular pain and radiculopathies long before they ever needed to. And in fact, they didn't need to. So um, when you know that, I mean, I just have rules of thumb, which seem to work okay for me in, in primary care. And that is, Around about 75% of people do pretty well in six months if they have acute radiculopathy and radicular pain. If you leave them alone and just manage them and try, enough to, try to help them get through the problem of depression, severe pain, sleep disturbance, all those things that they have, you know, around about 75% of them do okay in about six months. And by two years down the track, um, you've still got 10%, you've still got significant leg pain. So um, that's, that's the natural history of these things. Now, in the neck, it's different. In the neck, um, the, the, actually, the prognosis is better. Um, that it can be just as disturbing, just as um, uh, unpleasant and really, really um, distressing. Um, um, but here's a rule of thumb that, that may be of some value. One is, is that 
um, that the first eight weeks of the acute disc herniation in the neck causing the, the arm pain, uh, the first eight weeks is hell. Mm. It is really nasty. And, but if you can get the patient through that period, um, then this rule you can basically stick with. That is, uh, the faster the pain in the arm develops in the history of the disorder, the more you can say that they will be better in 16 weeks, completely better in 16 weeks. So in other words, if the patient tells you that they started off with neck pain uh, two days ago and now they have raging arm pain, Mm -hmm. you can say in 16 weeks there's a 95% chance you'll be completely pain-free. If they come to you and say, oh, I had neck pain that started two months ago, and slowly over a period of time, I started to get this arm pain, and now I can't. I've got. I can't. I've got a weak triceps or a weak biceps or something. Then your confidence in saying you're going to be better in 16 weeks is less. If the patient has already had it for 16 weeks down the arm, and they haven't gotten better, then they're not going to get better in 16 weeks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, in other words, your Confidence in the prognosis, good prognosis, depends totally on the speed with which the arm pain develops. Now, so that matters when you are seeing this patient because if you see them right soon after the onset of pain, then that you can look at what the prognosis is likely to be. If you see them further down the track, say if you're seeing them about the eighth week and they had a rapid onset, of pain, you can say it's about to change. It's about to change. Yeah. Because about the eighth week, the arm pain starts getting less. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So if you give them acupuncture or smile at them or wave gems <laughs> or pray or whatever, they're going to get better, right? Mm-hmm. So it depends where in that natural history you're seeing them. And so my advice changes mm-hmm. according to where you're seeing them. At what point in the the path their their journey is, so um, uh, so I so I use injections. I obviously tried to do my McKenzie thing and try and get the centralization to occur. If I can get that to happen, then um, I think the evidence is, is correct. I think the evidence that, that mm. these people, if you give them directional exercises when you can centralize. Um, I think the evidence is correct. The, the prognosis is good. It's not mm-hmm. perfect mm-hmm. by no means. Nothing's mm-hmm. perfect. But um, there's a very good chance that you can do something rapid and good with that patient. And let's say um, someone with quite pronounced radicular pain, they don't centralise. Is there a role for exercise and treatment there? No. Mm. I mean, I, the answer is it depends what the patient wants. Yeah. See, a lot of patients... I. I show slides. I think you, did I, you saw the slide of the Indian guy, right? On my, on my thing? Yes. And he came to me with the biggest prolapse. I didn't even know how big his prolapse was, but he had a raging leg pain. Mm. And he'd had it, and he was in agony, and he was distressed, and his wife was there, and she was you know, distressed. And I said, look, go and see a neurosurgeon and take the operation. And he said, I don't want a surgery. I will not have surgery. I will not have surgery. And so... Three weeks later, he sees the surgeon. And during that three weeks, he and the half of India, they're all praying together, apparently, about 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 
you know, uh, wanting their pain to go away, he goes to see the surgeon and he didn't have any pain anymore. And he was in agony three mm-hmm. weeks earlier, but in, by the time he saw the surgeon, he was pain free. And so the surgeon said, quite correctly, I can't operate on you. You don't have any pain, yeah. boy. You know, you've got this massive prolapse, but you don't have any pain, so why am I going to operate on you? Mm-hmm. And so he says, oh, thank you, thank you, and prayed back to God or whatever. He's a Hindu and, and whatever they're praying to. And he, and he comes back to see me after he saw the surgeon, and he still had a straight leg raise of 40 degrees. And yeah. I would bounce, 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 and it wouldn't go any further. It's stuck. I mean, mm-hmm. it's really, but he's not, no pain. Oh, no, no pain, no pain, no pain. Mm-hmm. Fine. So I said, into the gym with you. Mm-hmm. So we put him in the gym. And six months later, we're at a party at the gym because it was their 10-year anniversary or something. And Peter comes up to me and he says, hey, Mark, how are you doing? I said, my God, you've lost weight. You look fantastic. He says, this is the best I've been in decades. Yeah. Best I've been. And his wife was there. And she says, oh, the sex is very good too. <laughs> oh, Okay. <laughs> But, you know, I mean, he was as happy as you could be. Yeah, yeah. Now, you go from that all the way through to the people who can't tolerate any pain, will not tolerate any pain. I mean, it's not simple. No, no. I mean, it's it's simple in principle, but life is complex. Yeah. So as you say, it depends on the patient and, of, of course, for what anyone. The patient wants. And that's why Hans van Helvet's work is so good. Mm-hmm. Because in the end, the patients chose whether they had surgery or not. Mm. Not us. We we don't make those choices. We don't have to. On that point of people, um, like the kind of long-term, you know, this is a question actually from Ashraf. um, And he's wondering if there's any long-term restrictions on movement. So after someone's got over the worst of their ridiculous pain and it's then tolerable, or let's say it's gone away completely, do you want to put any, give any long-term sort of guidelines or restrictions on movement no. or are they just free no. to do what they want? Get into it. Get into life. Mm-hmm. One of the things that, um, that I've had many discussions with various surgeons throughout the world and my local people and surgeons are divided like this, boom, boom. Mm-hmm. Those who, who like their patients to get post-operative care and those who don't. And, um, uh, but I, there are, in, the, in my course, you, you, uh, I, I, I quickly skim over some of the papers. Uh, the one I like is Danielson from Norway, I think it was, and it's called, um, where they, they did the, the classic Scandinavian, put them through, put them through the pressure, you know, straight out of surgery, boom, we've got yeah. you in the gym, hard, hard work. Viking you know, good, good Scandinavian attitude. And they did fine. You know, so and I and I uh, personally, I think that the sooner I can get a person into the gym, I don't do gym work. I nothing bores me more than watching people exercise. Really, it just bores me. I just can't stand it. Yeah. And so I I get other people who actually like that stuff mm-hmm. to do those things. So I, as soon as the patient is ready to go in the gym, I get their physiotherapist. I mean, I don't practice as a regular physiotherapist anymore. I just. I practice as a specialist, but so whenever a person needs ordinary physiotherapy, boom, I get them to see an ordinary physiotherapist, put them in the gym, exercise, what have you. Should it be core? Should it be stretching? Should it be Pilates? Should it be yoga? I don't give a shit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There is absolutely no evidence that suggests that any form of exercise is any better than any other. 
in terms of general conditioning. What is important is that they get moving, that they get their confidence back, that they get to the, the trust their back. All those psychosocial things are really important and exercise is a great way to do that. And just to clarify, that goes for people who have recovered just with time as well as post-operatively. Yeah, Absolutely. And, and it comes to the point when they have to get moving if they're going to want to get better mm-hmm. for the rest of the, rid of the rest of their recovery. And Ashraf, so who asked that... Loading is an essential pathway mm-hmm. that they've got to go down. Ashraf, who asked that question, was particularly wondering about squatting and deadlifting. Can, can Ashraf get back to squatting and deadlifting? Not, you don't um, have to comment on Ashraf individually. I shouldn't, no, I, shouldn't no I, I don't know about him, but, I, but I, the, here's the thing, is that we've had this discussion with um, um, Adam, um, what's his name, Adam? He's, um, the guy on Twitter? I, yeah. Adam Meekins? Megan, that's yeah. it. Yeah. We had this, we had this um, Twitter conversation, if you like, or back to the forwards. And he, he's doing these, you know, flexion deadlifts, you know, with the spine completely flexed, knee straight like that. And he's got his huge body weights on and stuff like this. I don't approve of that. Mm-hmm. I, I think that that's silly. You know, he might be able to do it. He might be really lucky. But I would, but I would not want to take the consequence of a person blowing their back with a big, big weight on like that. Very stupid. Um, deadlifts, yeah, they're okay. Um, I still think you should maintain a low doses. Okay? Deadlift is a good exercise, mm. a good way to strengthen up a lot of muscles all at once. Squats are fine too, but I don't like my patients going down below 90 degrees in the knees. Mm-hmm. All right? Because you cannot escape the fact that the L5, L4, 5S1 is flexible, regardless of how much um, you're, you, you try to retain a low doses. You are flexible. It's the same with running. All right, at the, at, the, at the full extent of your reach, your inflection, you can't, doesn't matter what you do. So the, you have to have compensatory. Um, uh, I've, I've just I've published a brief paper on three young rowers, you're less than 20 years of age with, with posterior um, disc bulges, extension responsive, and all the rest of it. And they're, they're not even skeletally, skeletally mature and they've got bulging disc and degenerative disc. Mm-hmm. This is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And now, part of this is going to be genetic, and there's nothing we can do about it, all right, or at least familiar, at least. But the reality is is that that uh, I, you cannot toss all of the work done by those researchers in the 70s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, and 90s on our understanding of how just move, degenerate, and the biomechanical stuff. That is a lot of good work there. And you cannot just chuck it out so off. It's just about activity and, and, and just, you know, you can't go wrong by being strong. Bullshit. That is bullshit. Mm. All right? Arnold Schwarzenegger got back pain. Mm-hmm. The strongest guys in the world get back pain, and it can be just as disabling as anybody else. Being strong doesn't, prevent, doesn't protect you. Getting strong is really good psychologically. And, it's, and it can actually be the difference between getting mostly better and completely better. Mm. But you cannot, I don't believe that being strong protects you from back pain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it seems like the the sticking point is loaded flexion, which... Um... Well, that to me, that's, that's advice that I would want to be, I wouldn't want to be in the United States being uh, Adam Nickens. Yes, fair enough. Yeah. Money. Yeah, and succeed. By the way, mm-hmm. 
Uh, that's, that, that's, 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 that's risky advice. You mentioned pain detect before and this thing of, you said it didn't really change your practice. And to my mind, probably the only way it would is if you were thinking about prescribing or rec- recommending the prescription of anti-neuropathic pain medications. I'm probably putting you in a position here I did with the injections where it's, I might be right in saying it's not your specialty, but I'm very curious about just your clinical impression um, because my reading of the evidence is it's very inconclusive. Um, it's not very encouraging, that's for sure, but it also doesn't you know, give us hard evidence that these things don't work, um, which to me means that someone's clinical impression is very important in me evaluating these things. So what's your experience being a patient's experience with anti-neuropathic medications? <sighs> Things like pre-gambling uh, and, and, and um, um, gabapentin and stuff like that, I think they have a role. Um, there's certainly um, the, uh, those people who clearly have ectopic-type symptoms where there's, there's, there's spontaneous um, pain being generated um, down the leg or down the arm, um, even in the back, actually. But but if it's spontaneous, like they'd just be standing here like this and suddenly, oh, oh, mm. shit. You know, um, that sort of, um, without having to move or, you know, um, or just be in a posture for a long period of time, then the pain develops or suddenly they get a sharp twinge. Um, those sorts of uh, what seem to me to be ectopic uh, firings, I think those are the cases that that sort of medication may well be useful for. Um, I think we are a long way from being able to identify that class of people clinically, mm-hmm. the class of people who are the best responders. I, I am I'm not in favour of giving these that medication to people just as like because you've got leg pain. That's silly. Um, all leg, as you know, I mean, I, I read your article on, in, uh, on I just I scanned it this morning. I, I quickly scanned it. I haven't read it in full, yeah. but it looked pretty, pretty sound to me. Um, you know, I think that uh, somatic referred pain um, is not affected by these drugs, and, no. and so you have to be, you have to make it very, very clear um, that you're looking at radicular pain and probably a sort of subset of radicular pain. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, if it's mechanical or purely chemical, um, then it probably is not going to work. If it's going, to, if it's ectopic, then it mm-hmm. probably is. I mean, these are drugs that are used for people who get migraines and people who get. Um, Epilepsy. That's what they. That's where their origins come from, and they to stop ectopic behaviour. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. they and they work for that, but they won't work for compression of the nerve. Mm-hmm. So whether or not the pain detect is able to identify those people most yeah. likely to respond to those drugs, I, I don't know. You'd have to talk to anyone about that. Mm. I guess it comes back to what you were saying about. Um, how Mackenzie said, why are we manipulating hundreds of people to find out the few that respond? And Same principle. Absolutely. Difficult, difficult Absolutely. thing. Mm. Yeah. But, it's, I mean, when people are in that position, as, as I don't need to tell you, as a clinician, you just really want something, don't you? <laughs> you really want well, something. You, know, you do. As you, as you um, stay in practice for a while, you, you tend to get little rules that, are, that seem to work. And, mm-hmm. and that, that may be just, it may be imaginary, but, it, but we need that because it keeps us sufficient. Mm-hmm. So as I said at the beginning of the conversation, you know, we weren't trying to cover radicular pain from A to Z 
what we, I really wanted to do is to pick up on a few things that I thought you could shed light on and you in particular would have a great perspective on. And I think I've really got a lot from this conversation. So thank you, Mark. I pre really appreciate your time. Is there anything that you feel like you really want to get off your chest on this topic? No, not really. Like I mean, uh, I think that um, my material isn't for everybody. I know that, and that's fine. Um, but um, we are one of the things that I've learned in the last year, maybe 18 months, is that my course at UDA, all right, that's my flagship course. I feel like that's all, that's basically clinical doctorate, master's, master's level. Um, and that's not what most physiotherapists want to see because it, it's advanced and you have to be able to deal with ordinary stuff first before you can really understand the relevance of that advanced material. And so that is one of the reasons why we've just spent the last three or four months working on back pain 101, we're going to call it. And it's and we don't talk about, there's no repeated movements in it. There's no manipulation. There's no sacrilege joint tests. We identify a group of people mm -hmm. who will respond to just about anything. They're not going to be, they're not stressed. We've got the start back, use the start back. They're not red flags. So, you know, doesn't matter what you do, you can smile at them, you can give them pills, you can give them exercise, you can probably give them flexion or extension, probably won't matter, they're going to get better. Yeah. Whether because of what you do or in spite of it, it doesn't matter. But it's a fairly large group of people, it's probably 40 or 50% of people mm -hmm. are going to get better almost irrespective of what you do, even in spite of sometimes. So what do you do with it? What's the best thing to do with those people? Do you give them flexion? Do you give them extension? What? So we, that, that's back pain 101. By Christmas, we'll have out of course back pain 201, which is we introduce repetitive movements, the sacred adjunct tests. And so we start to refine things a little bit better, make it better, and talk about uh, ridiculous pain a little bit, a little bit. And then after you've done that, then you can go on to my level three courses, which are we'll look at the sacroiliac joint and not only do the diagnosis, but also the treatment. Same with the facets, same with discogenic pain. I'm going to a new course, which will be what I call SOS back pain, which is sudden onset severe. The person who walks in the door in agony, what do you do? Mm -hmm. What do you do with that patient? Have you never had the experience of having to manage the person who's walked in and put their back out two days ago or even an hour ago and they're bent out of shape or they're just they're like this? What do you actually do with those people? That's a course all by itself. And uh, we have, we have I've got the material for all of that and all the deformities and stuff like that. So that's, that's, that's what I call that level three, level three, but just level one or two, which that's going to be coming in October at level one and level two by Christmas. So hopefully people will enjoy that and um, will find that useful, particularly the new grads coming out, the people who are recent uh, about to start treating back pains in the clinic and not work on theory from mm -hmm. the court, from their, from their training, just having, what, what do I actually do? How do I select patients? And when do I get a colleague, an advanced practitioner colleague or a specialist involved? What do I do? So that, uh, to me, there are, you know, there are, I mean, you. You can follow the guidelines and they're pretty hopeless. Guidelines are actually contradictory. On the one hand, they say it doesn't matter what you do, whether you treat them or not, whether you give them extension or acupuncture or pills, the results are the same, right? Okay, that's what that's what the research actually says. And they're quite correct. They don't say that. 
And we've talked about that non-specific background being a useless concept. And then at the same breath, I'll say, oh, prognosis is good. Yeah. So why is it 30% of people still got significant pain in 12 months? Mm-hmm. How can mm-hmm. prognosis be good when that's true? The guidelines are useless to the person coming out of school. So that's what background one course is about. Yeah. There's a lot of craft knowledge that we need to make sure is still out there. I mean, listen, I mean, this risk management thing. You look at the guidelines, they say, don't smoke, lose weight, stay out of bed, stay yeah. positive. They're just risk factors. They're not but, treatments. When a person comes in the door, yeah. oh, I've got the sore back, what can you do? Are you going to manage them with risk factors? Come mm. on, get off the grass. Got yeah. a phone call. Yeah. Mark, I'll let you go. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. It was gold. Cheers. Take care now. Bye-bye. Bye. Mark speaking. <laughs>